Bibles, if you would, and open them to Matthew chapter 15. It seems like almost every time that we start a new chapter in our study that I tell you that we are in a very important place of Scripture. And there's hardly a a word that we can pass on as we go through this study that is not very important to our understanding of who God is. I hope that you're like me. I hope you love the Bible. I hope you love to read the Bible. I I hope that this is the main thing in your life, your faith in Christ and knowing what God has for you in his holy word. And we can well imagine that anything that we find in Scripture about the life of our Savior would be of paramount importance and that we ought to observe it very closely. And this passage is particularly important because it's definitive for our understanding of the difference between man's religion and God's religion. And it shows us how prone that we are to impose our standards for the way that we want to worship God when God has prescribed his own form of worship. There is a way that he says for us to come to him. There's a way that we are to worship him. God is the one who defines that worship. Jesus said to the woman at the well, he he says, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, if God is a spirit, how are we to know how to worship him? How has God revealed that to us? How has he shown us? How has he taught us how to worship? I think most of you probably know the answer to that question and I would expect that you would say that God shows us how to worship in the Bible. That the Bible is God's word to man, that this is where he reveals himself to us. God has given us a perfect book, a, a book that tells us what he's like. This book tells us about his righteousness, about his holiness and his perfection. This truth tells us uh, the holy word here is intended to show us the right way to approach him. When Jesus spoke to his disciples in John seventeen seventeen, or whether he was praying for them, he prayed to his Father and he said, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. In other words, he said to them, Make them holy. That's what the word sanctify means. Make them holy through the truth of your word. Or another way of saying that is, Father, purify them through your truth. Your word is the truth. And I believe that indicates that when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John 4, he was telling her that if she wanted to worship him in the right way, she had to do it the way that God says to do it. That she must look and see the prescribed form of worship that we find in God's word. And if this is the way that God speaks to us through his word, and if we are to trust the truthfulness of the Savior, then we have to have as much regard for the word of God as he did. And that's why we preach from the Bible. That's why every week we pick up the Bible and we read it in our services. This is why this is the only source material that we have. This is where we learn about God and the way that we can be purified from the sins of the world. This is the way that we are regenerated. This is what Peter said about the word. In 1 Peter, he said, Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit and the unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And listen, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You may remember that when Jesus and Satan had a scripture quoting contest in Matthew chapter 4, 
that Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, do you see how important that the word of God is? You are born again by the word. You live by the word of God. All truth is God's truth. All truth originates with God. And that really needs to be kept in your mind as we approach this service or this, this sermon, this subject that we're going to talk about today. Keep that in your mind of how important that God's word is. You are born again, you are regenerated, and you live by God's word. Now, our problem is, though, that we too easily pervert God's truth, and we twist the truth, we mangle the truth, and when we do that, we do it to our own peril. And this is the problem in this passage. What does God say, and what does man say? Which is the truth? And let me remind you also that Jesus is truth because Jesus is the living word. Isn't that what Jesus said, or John said rather, in John chapter 1? It's really a verse, quite frankly, the Jehovah Witnesses like to write out of the Bible and change it, which they in fact do in their translations of Scripture, where John said, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in the 14th verse, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in the first two verses of the chapter we're studying today, there's a challenge against Jesus and a challenge against truth. And there's an attempt here to exalt man's traditions above the word of God. And so we have a story here really about perverted worship. And by the time that we get all the way down to the end of this, a little later on in verse number 20, it will be a difference between real worship versus ritual worship and a difference between the inward faith that we need to have towards God as opposed to the outward form of religion that so many people have. Now, if you look in your Bible then at Matthew chapter 15 and stand with me once again with the reading for God's Word, Matthew 15 beginning in verse number 1, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress through a tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Uh, Help us as we look at this subject today. Open our hearts to truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All of what I've just said is introduction to the subject today. 
Now, what I need to do, though, is we need to back up and go into the 14th chapter, the end of the 14th chapter, and I'm going to give you an introduction to my introduction. And I'm doing that backwards, but that's okay. Uh, Most of you have been with us and you've been following along in our study of Matthew. And as you know, it's a verse-by-verse study. And if you've been following along, then you know that we have not yet dealt with the end of the 14th chapter. We haven't, I haven't spoken anything about verses 34 through 36. And so what we need to do is to go back there because the first verse of chapter 15 begins with the word then. And that, of course, means that the events of chapter 15 follow on very closely to what happens at the end of chapter 14. Now, I want us to back all the way up to verse number 33. And this gives us a good introduction to the 15th chapter because this gives us some of the background for the confrontation here that happens between Jesus and the Pharisees in the beginning of that 15th chapter. Now, we notice in verse number 33, it says, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. The disciples said to Jesus, Truly, you are the Son of God, and they worshipped him. Verse number 34 says, And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Now this was the subject last week. We talked about Jesus walking on the water. And the disciples worshipped him because it is impossible to walk on water. And they worshipped him because he had the ability to lift Peter up when he was drowning. And they worshipped him because he was able to control that troublesome sea. He was able to still that storm. And that caused the disciples, for the very first time that we find in the book of Matthew, it caused them to say to Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. The disciples had rowed all night to reach the shore. But after this interlude that they had with Jesus, when he came walking on the sea, the Bible says that they were immediately at their destination. They had passed over the sea, and they were in the land of Gennesaret. And that was a fertile plain on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a farming area, so there weren't very many Uh, cities that were there but when they heard that Jesus was in that area sick people from everywhere started to stream in to see him and I don't want to spend too much time on this because we've talked so often about the compassion of Jesus and we're going to talk about it later on here in this chapter but Jesus was busy all of the time healing people and so we would expect nothing different from him when they find out that he's back in the area again when he is on this side of the sea that people would start coming to him and they would ask for healing but we notice something a little bit different about the healing here the method of his healing in verse number 36 it says that people came to him and they didn't ask Jesus to speak incantations over them and they didn't say Jesus speak to us or slap us on the forehead and say sins be gone and diseases be gone no what they did they came to Jesus and they only wanted to do this they asked to touch the hem of his garment They believed that there was virtue in him. They believed that if they could just touch him, that they would be healed. 
Now, no doubt they'd heard about what happened in Capernaum in chapter 9. And this is when a woman secretly came up behind Jesus and touched him. And she was made whole, made well of her disease. And this woman was thinking, if only I can get close enough, just close enough where I can touch his garment, then I shall be whole. And you can read about that in the 21st verse of chapter 9, or you can go to Luke chapter 8 and read about it there and get some more detail. And so once again, the compassion of Jesus for people is seen. He healed people of their diseases. And in a time when primitive medicine was not much to talk about or when they had no medicine at all, this was just an incalculable blessing. And then he satisfied another physical need. We studied about that, that he fed these people. And so that made his popularity soar. Well, we move into chapter 15, and Jesus is at the height of his popularity. The scribes and the Pharisees could do nothing with him. Every time they challenged him on Scripture, they they were silenced. And they had no intention of being converted because they had concluded a long time ago that he was not really from God, that he did his power under the work of Satan. So the only thing that the scribes and Pharisees then had on their mind was how can we get rid of Jesus? And this place of scripture is important because Jesus' popularity was so high. In fact, this is as high as it will go. And at the pinnacle of that popularity, he says something here in this 15th chapter that shook the foundations of their religion. And it also shocked his own disciples. From here... It's mostly downhill. Jesus will spend less and less time with crowds and he'll spend more time teaching his disciples. From here, there is about one year left before he goes to the cross. And we know this because this chapter, this section of Matthew parallels what we read in John chapter 6. And there it tells us that there was, this was at the Passover time and there's only one more Passover that's left And then Jesus will go to Jerusalem at the Passover time to be crucified. Now, returning to this story, I want you to notice what we find here, first of all, in this this 15th chapter is this delegation, the officials that come from Jerusalem. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem. Now, here is a new confrontation. Jesus was teaching in Galilee, and the scribes and the Pharisees could do nothing with him. And so some surmised that the leaders in Galilee asked for a delegation to be sent from Jerusalem. They, they spoke to Jesus, they argued with him, they tried to use scripture against him, but that was no good. They just couldn't do anything with him. They couldn't do anything to stem the tide of his popularity. So not being able to successfully argue with him, what do you do? What are you going to do about Jesus? Well, they decided to do what maybe some folks thought would be a good thing to do, and that is to call in the big guns. Call in somebody who really knows his stuff, somebody who really is is knowledgeable about things, who can take Jesus and put him in his place. And so they called upon these leaders that are in Jerusalem. They are the ones who come from the holy temple of God in that city. They're the ones who come from the holy city of God. They know more and are respected more than the scribes and Pharisees that are in Galilee. And so they sent for these men and they came to see Jesus. And these scribes and Pharisees of Galilee had confidence in them. And the people had confidence in them. 
These were men that were supposed to know the religion well. They represented the religion of old time. So these men knew about the time-honored traditions of the Jews. And so it was in that tradition, all these extra things that had been added to the word of God, that these people had placed their faith. And I hope you see that this is really going to be a problem because when they come to speak to Jesus, he is the one who is truth personified. He is God. He is the manifestation of God on the earth. And there's going to be a great conflict here between what man says and what God says. Now we notice, secondly, the objection of the delegation. They said, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. There's some commentators that note the subtlety of this question. They approach Jesus with what seems to be a simple, honest question. They notice that Jesus and his disciples did not observe the custom of the Jews in washing their hands before they ate. And so they just simply ask the question, why do you do it this way? Why don't you observe their traditions? And you'll notice they don't hit Jesus with a strong accusation but rather it appears that their interest is to enter into a discussion with him. Let's get into a dialogue about this, and perhaps we'll be able to reach a compromise that we can all live with. But in reality, there was only one position that would work for the Pharisees, and that was Jesus and his disciples must yield true tradition. At some point, they have to accept this delegation's determinations because anything less undermines their authority. And if they allow that to happen, if they concede any authority, then they say, well, Jesus is of equal rank to us, and the traditions that we put upon the people aren't as binding as we told them they are. And the people would see that as well. So the simple conclusion of the matter, as far as they were concerned, is they outrank Jesus. Now, I like Joseph Parker's comments on this. Now, most of you probably never heard of Joseph Parker, and that's because he was overshadowed by Charles Spurgeon. Now, if you know, if you've read Spurgeon or know about him, the most famous preacher since Bible times was Charles Spurgeon, and Joseph Parker ministered in England at the same time as Charles Spurgeon. So he was kind of in the shadows of Spurgeon, but he was an excellent preacher, and uh, he drew huge crowds to hear him preach. And he labored under that shadow all of the time, but there were, there were people that served, the, served well by going to hear him preach. But he, he had some comments about this that I thought were very interesting. He says, this is what Jesus Christ has to say to all opposing parties. He does not come as one of many saying, let us see where the exact point of rest is as between us, controversialist as we are, each entitled to an equal hearing of the other, He holds no parley, he has no rivals, he makes no compromises, never does he approach any opponent in the spirit of reconciliation. Everything must go before the spirituality and the splendor of his kingdom. And then Parker goes on to quote the thoughts of the Pharisees. Thy disciples are guilty of what appears to be a violent encroachment upon old usages. Let us talk the matter over. And then he says... Jesus Christ never talked matters over with anyone on equal terms. Remember this in considering the sovereignty and the completeness of the claim which he laid to the attention and the confidence of the world. Now, folks, that is a very important statement, especially concerning the religious pluralism that we find in today's society. 
The idea is that all religions stand on equal terms. That all ways are equal ways. All paths to God are good paths to God. All are legitimate paths. So if all ways are equal ways, then what we need to do as Christians is to seek an interfaith dialogue. And so we can speak to the Muslims and the Buddhists and all of the others and see if there's some place that we can come together and help each other and respect each other as we go along our respective paths trying to get to God. But the problem is all ways are not equal ways. Jesus does not stand as an equal among equals. Jesus is God. Jesus is the authority. He alone is sovereign and supreme. And as he would not compromise with the Pharisees in his day, he is not going to let us compromise anything that's written in the word of God. We can't sit down and speak to people and make compromises on what God says in his word because God is the final authority for everything. He is the living word, Jesus Christ. So he is the final authority. So it doesn't matter what tradition says. Even if that is a Christian tradition, it doesn't matter if those traditions transgress, supersede, counter, or in addition to the word of God, they simply do not count. The subject here is tradition versus truth. And the way that this question is posed in this verse is very telling on what the scribes and the Pharisees regarded as authoritative. They didn't ask. Now notice very carefully, they did not ask, why do your disciples transgress the commandments of God? They said, why do you and your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Now there's the point of contention. And there's only one tradition that's mentioned here. They could have brought up hundreds, but they bring up this one. They start with this one. The disciples did not wash their hands before they ate. Well, what's the significance of that question? And what is the tradition of the elders? Well, elders, that doesn't mean just old men, but it means those that were in a long line of law experts and keepers of tradition that actually date all the way back to the time of Moses. Now let's talk about that for a few minutes. The opinions of the elders. The opinions. One of the things that I enjoy about living in America is the emphasis that we have on cleanliness and sanitation. I've not been to a lot of third world countries, but I can tell you that in the westernized ones that I've been to, some of them I'm not too pleased with because I didn't think they were clean enough. Most of you probably grew up in a home like I did, that we were told to wash our hands before we ate. And one of the things we always observe with our grandkids is we tell them that, go wash your hands before you eat. But it really doesn't matter all that much because they're prone to eat things off of the floor. And they're rigid observers of that five-second rule. And in Jolie's case, five days sometimes is okay with her. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they objected to this practice of the disciples not washing their hands before they ate. But their reasons were not the same as ours. Our reason is germs. Wash your hands because there are germs on them. You're going to get sick if you don't wash your hands before you eat. That's not the reason. See, they didn't know anything about germs. It's 1,600 years before anyone knows anything at all about germs. So their objection is based on not germs, but their rituals. And so washing their hands was not a sanitation issue. It was a 
sanctification issue. How are we going to be holy? How can we keep from being defiled? How can we be unpolluted, unspotted? And so to them, to be right with God, you had to do certain things. You, and one of those things before you ate, you had to wash your hands. And you had to wash away the pollution of sin. That, that sin, that, that evil, whatever things that you touch, that has to be washed away before you can eat. And the Pharisees were very careful about it. They, they were concerned about being polluted. So they wanted to wash their hands lest they touch something that, that had been defiled or they touched something that a Gentile had touched. And if they did that, then they would ingest the defilement of a Gentile. And here's something very peculiar to these Jews. They also believed that during the night that there was a demon named Shibta that came and sat on the hands And so when you got ready to eat, you had to wash away the defilement of that demon or else you would ingest that demon, the sinfulness of it, and you would be polluted and defiled. Now for them, washing their hands was not a matter of just going up under the tap and turning it on and and, uh, rubbing some soap on your hands underneath the water and washing them away, washing the, the dirt or the defilement rather away. No, they had a particular way that this has to be done it all has to be followed very closely so what they would do is they would take and wash their hands and they would hold them up and the water would run down their fingers and it must drip off of the wrist and if you didn't do it that way then you didn't do it right and your defilement still remained and there were some of the Jews that didn't wash just once before they ate but they thought they had to wash between every course of the meal And so they go through this ritual of washing their hands. Now here's the issue. It's the failure of the disciples to observe those rituals. And that was just one of thousands of rituals they had. Well, we have to ask the question, how did the Jews ever come to this? Where did they get these conclusions? Is this information that can be found in the Bible? Is that where they got this? Well, well, to be fair about it, it does start with the Bible. Because... There are ceremonies in the Old Testament that were intended to be symbols of heavenly things. The Bible does talk about ceremonial washings, but the specific purpose of those had been lost by the time that you get to Jesus. The Bible never says that everybody must wash their hands, and it doesn't say you have to wash them before every meal. This is something that was added by the opinions of the elders. So what was minimal and true had become maximized and untrue. What was not considered to be sinful had become sinful. What was never intended to justify had become the means of justification. What was never intended to save people became the way that they thought that they were saved. What was never a way to be right with God actually became the whole system of righteousness. Well, how did that get started? How how did things get so perverted? Well, to answer that question, you have to go back to the time of the Babylonian captivity. And this is when the Jews were just so shocked that Jerusalem, the holy city, had been destroyed and the temple had been destroyed, something they thought never could happen. You go back to that time and the people realized they were so shocked by those things that they knew this, that if God was going to bless their nation again, then what they must do is go back to worshiping God in the right way. They had to return to true worship. Now, God had allowed the captivity because the Jews had become idolaters and they'd become much like the Gentile nations that were around them. And so at the end of the captivity, there was a great attempt to return to God's commandments. 
And you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. There you read how the priesthood was purged, how there was a strong emphasis in returning to the reverence for God's word. And some of you may wonder, why do you stand for the public reading of God's word at Berean Baptist? Well, I'll tell you this, I don't think it's a rule that has to be kept, but where do we get the practice? We go back to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. There was genuine repentance in the time of Nehemiah. There was confession of sin. There was respect for God's word. The people would stand up for hours when the word of God was read publicly. So the system starts there, and it's still right at this point. This is honest, sincere worship of God. But over the years, the priesthood and the scribes began to build a hedge around the word of God. And they were concerned that people should keep all of the commandments and all of these things would be preserved. And so they built their hedge that was made up of new laws and practices that were sure to protect God's law. So the scribes became the protectors of it. They became the interpreters of it. And at first they were just oral traditions. These are things that were remembered and passed down from generation to generation. They were repeated and they were repeated and they became a part of their lives and they kept remembering those things. And eventually though there became so many of these that it was impossible to remember them all. So they said we need to write this down. And so they wrote down their oral traditions and that was known as the Mishnah. Mishnah means repetition. The way that they learned was to keep repeating and repeating and repeating. So they wrote down the oral laws, and that was the, the Mishnah. Well, then they decided, well, what we really need is a commentary on the oral laws. And so they wrote the Gemara. The Gemara, that is the commentary on Jewish law. Then they decided what we need to do is we need to put the Mishnah and the Gemara together, and that became the Talmud. If you've ever heard of the Talmud, that's what that is. The Mishnah and the Gemara put together is the Talmud. And that actually came after the time of Jesus. Not long after, but it came after the time of Jesus. But all of this thing was building from 200 years before Christ when this sect of the Pharisees arose. And when that came into being, the oral traditions had become more important than God's word. And the enforcers of all these traditions were the scribes, the priests, and the Pharisees. They had the authority to administer the traditions passed down from their ancestors. And so thus, you have a delegation from Jerusalem. And they come with a hammer of tradition to level it on the head of Jesus and his disciples and bring them into submission to their authority. Now, you may remember earlier they tried to do this with the Sabbath. They said Jesus broke the command of the Sabbath. Well, he didn't. He broke the hedge. He kind of broke through the hedge that they put around the Sabbath. He didn't break the Sabbath at all. But here we have something that seems to be far more serious to them. This is a violation of one of their main traditions, not washing hands. And this was extremely serious. The disciples had transgressed the direct teachings of the elders. This was far more serious than breaking God's commands of the Sabbath. And so now what the disciples have done, they have not transgressed God, they have transgressed the elders. 
Now these are quotes from their rabbis. They said, the words of the elders are weightier than the words of the prophets. They said, some of the words of the law and the prophets are weighty, others are not weighty. All the words of tradition are weighty words. Now we go back to our text and the scribes and the Pharisees ask, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders for they wash not their hands when they eat bread? And their question here is really a matter of authority. Which is more authoritative? Is it the words of the elders, the traditions of men, or is it the commands of God? Now listen to how they had changed faith in God as the way of salvation to faith in their traditions. Here's what they said. Whosoever hath his abode in the land of Israel and eateth his common food with washed hands and speaks the holy language and recites his phylacteries morning and evening, he may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. Now do you see a big difference in that in what Jesus said? Their righteousness was in the works that they did. It was in their ability to keep all of these traditions of the elders. They said these words are weightier than the words of God. And they actually believed that what God did was to study the word of the elders at night so he could keep up with all the changes that they made in their laws. Tradition replaced truth. And it makes you wonder if that's the method that God uses to keep up with the ins and the outs and changes of Catholicism. Now, they believe that their traditions are equal in authority to the word of God. And where their traditions are not found in scripture, their traditions rule. And so it makes you wonder, is this what God does? That when the Pope and their councils decide that they want to change God's word or add something to it, do something different, add a tradition that must be kept, what is God doing? At night, is he studying what the Pope said so he can be sure that he keeps up with all the changes? And you see, this is a question that poses a different standard of righteousness than that of God. Jesus defined righteousness as obedience to God's commandments. Now, before you go off on me here and think that, well, now that preacher is preaching a works righteousness, just listen for a minute. The righteousness of God is... It is obtained by perfect obedience. But the problem is, you and I aren't perfect. And we can't keep God's word perfectly. And that's why we need Jesus. He kept everything that God said perfectly. He kept all the God's law perfectly. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience is transferred to us. So now, the Pharisees have not only fallen short of keeping God's commandments, but they proposed righteousness by keeping their standards. And that's a different standard of righteousness than God's word. And that helps you to better understand why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, For I say unto you, that unless except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, you have to have a better system of righteousness than this. And understand this, that if your way of salvation is dependent upon things that you do, and it's dependent upon the traditions that some church has, then you have the wrong righteousness. It's not good enough. Here is a head-to-head confrontation between tradition and truth. Jesus is the truth. 
And when anyone comes to him and doubts his authority, then you know that they do not have the righteousness of God. Now, I need to end with that today. I would prefer that we would keep all of this together, all of these nine verses together, and then I'd preach to you at about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But I know you'd be past the time of listening and you might already be there. So we're going to save it for next week and we're going to come back and I'm going to use a little Mishnah on you. I'll have to repeat what I've said, some of it, to get everybody back on track. But we don't go without this. So hold on, you're not done yet. We don't go without this. What is the lesson that we learn from this message today? Well, it all comes down to this, that salvation is not a matter of works that you do for God. Somebody asked me not long ago, what is the most often misunderstanding of people that you deal with concerning the gospel? And my answer to that question was basically what we talked about today. And that is that I keep hearing people say, I'm trying to live a good life. I want to be better. I'm trying to do the best that I can. I am trying to work for God or I am working for God. And they do not understand that salvation is not what you do for God. It's what God has done for you. Many, many, many of the traditions that you find in churches, the things that people do, are not commands of God and they never were a part of God's word. And you can keep all of them perfectly. You can do everything they tell you to do and they're not going to make you one inch closer to God. In fact, they'll condemn you even further because they are gross perversions of God's way of salvation. You can only be saved one way and that is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if you're ready to come, if you're ready to come God's way, access is granted. But if you try any other way, access is denied. And so which is it? Your way or God's way? You're going to try man's way or the godly way? Jesus is not going to sit down and have a discussion with you about this. You can't come to him and he'll say, Oh, oh yes. It's becoming clear to me. I understand what you're saying. You, you want to get to heaven partly on your own, and you want to do what you want to do. And so what I think the best thing for us to do is compromise on the issue, and we'll come halfway. I'll do my part, you do your part, and we'll put those two parts together, and everything will be fine. You worship God, you say you want to worship God, that's fine. You worship the way that you want to, just as long as you think that you're worshiping God. Folks, no, 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 a thousand times no. He compromises with no one. It's his way or the highway. And the highway is the broad road of destruction. His way is salvation by grace through faith in him he's the authority and so if you want a relationship with him and if you want to worship God you must come his way he is the way the truth and the light life so if you're not on the same path that Jesus is walking get on that path it's the only path to the father and to eternal life Now, there's much more to be said. We've got seven more verses to cover here in this first section. And it really gets interesting in the way that the Pharisees transgress God's law by their traditions that they put in place. 
And I hope you'll come back and hear the rest of this because it's important because we are living in a world today where people think anything that I want to do, any way that I want to do it is okay with God. It's not. It's not. God tells us how to come to him and it's in his holy word and that's the only way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we thank you for this word that you've given us. We do learn about you. We learn how to worship you. We find out that the only way that we can approach you is to come through the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on Calvary. We're thankful, Lord, for what you did for us. And may we be oh so much aware and tell people it's not what they do for you. It's what you've done for them. And you sent Jesus to die for sins. I pray, Lord, someone would trust him today. Christian hearts would be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.